you please find your seats? We'll begin in a few short moments. Please hang on to your order of worship as well as your Psalter hymnal to find your seat. To begin with any prayer requests you might have. You were asking for prayer requests? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just going through a really stressful time with work and such a thing, so just if you were job related and also just, you know, I feel like I'm still recovering a little bit from the Effects of COVID. Yeah. Not sleeping well and stuff, so yeah. it's affecting me. Thank you. Anything else? Rachel? I would be good for my Tony. Went to his um, training the next few weeks, and he did pass his first exam. You heard that, yes. Yes. Uh, prayer for the witch in your travels and yeah. uh, for uh, Noel. Well, thank you for for sharing those. We'll definitely keep them in, in our prayers. Well, if you please stand for our call to worship, which comes from Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Well, here we read that God, through his Holy Spirit, is in the business of transforming us through the renewal of our minds. And so in this moment, we are called to... Think upon the word of God, and in so doing, we pray that the Spirit would work this transformation within us. Well, let's respond to God's call to worship by lifting up our voices once again and singing a, a setting of Psalm 102. So 102b. Sky. 
you may be seated. If you please take your order of worship and turn to the, the element that says prayer of thanksgiving. At this time in our service, we usually read together a form from, or a prayer from one of our, our forms and prayers. And this, these are prayers that come from uh, Christians who've gone before us. They are prayers that, that reflect the will of God revealed in scripture. And they teach us the type of things that we are to pray about. And here we seek to grow and continue to grow in the virtue of gratitude and thanksgiving as we pray this prayer of thanksgiving. So please follow along with me in your order of worship as we pray not only with our lips, but especially with our hearts saying, Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, do give you most humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all people. We bless you for our creation, our preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, your inestimable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ for the means of grace for the hope of glory. And we ask you, give us that due sense of all your mercies, that our hearts may be sincerely thankful, and that we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and walking before you in holiness and righteous all our days through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can either turn in them to Isaiah chapter 55 or look with me in your order of worship. I printed them out this week for the sake of convenience. We'll be uh, reading both Isaiah 55, 8 through 11, as well as Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20 this morning. So first, Isaiah chapter 58, verses 8 through 11. Hear now the word of our Lord. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, this is the passage that has been traditionally called the Great Commission. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, that sends a reading of God's word. May he again write this word upon our hearts this morning. 
If you also keep uh, your order of worship open to our confessional reading element, we are going to confess together Lord's Day 8, which consists of question and answers 24 and 25 of our Heidelberg Catechism, which again is one of our so-called confession or statements of faith. It's, we believe it, it's not scripture, it's below scripture, but we believe it to be a faithful interpretation of the main doctrines that are revealed to us in the inspired word of God. So question and answers 24 and 25. I'll read the questions if you please respond by reciting the answer. So question 24, and here question 24 is referencing the Apostles' Creed. It says, how are these articles divided into three parts? God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Question 25 asks, since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because that is how God has revealed himself in his word. These three distinct persons, the one true eternal God. Well, as many of you know, our catechism has three overarching sections, guilt, grace, gratitude, or sin, salvation, service. And we are currently walking through the salvation or um, grace section of our catechism. And last week we considered the nature of true faith. What is faith? What is saving faith? What is justifying faith? Do you remember what the three elements of faith are according to the catechism? Knowledge. Knowledge. Assent. Assent. Trust. Trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. We have to know a body of doctrine, but we don't just have to know it. We have to assent to its truthfulness. The Apostle Paul, last week, we, we considered how he, he described his faith as this, this knowing Christ, but it was a knowledge that was of surpassing worth. And then we also have to trust in it personally for ourselves. That not only to others, but to me also, Christ has granted me, granted to me forgiveness of sins and righteousness and salvation. So knowledge, assent, and trust. But the question that then comes to mind is, well, what are those things that we need to know? Those things that we need to assent to, and those things that we need to trust. And what creed did the catechism give us in response to that question? The Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is a very succinct form, summary of those things, the essentials that we need to know, we need to assent to, and we need to trust in. So now, for about the next 15 weeks, the Catechism will be explaining every article of the Apostles' Creed as those things that we need to know, those things that we need to assent to, and those things that we need to trust. And this shows us that the Catechism, which was written in 1563, was not trying to do something novel. Yes, it's a reformational document, but catechisms from the very beginning of the, the post-apostolic church used the Apostles' Creed, or at least a form of the Apostles' Creed, to educate her people. And the catechism is then standing in this tradition, but it's now giving an interpretation of the, cat, of the creed uh, in a reformed perspective, a reformed interpretation of the Apostles' Creed. And so today, we begin at the beginning of this creed, and 
Of course, this creed exposes us to the Trinity. The main outline of the creed is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Right at the beginning, we encounter this doctrine that God is fundamentally one God, but exists in three distinct persons. And so today we're going to reflect upon the nature of the Trinity. So that's what we're going to begin with. We're going to just consider for a few moments the nature of, of the Trinity, what the Bible has to say about the Trinity. And then I'd like us to consider the beginning part of question and answer 25 when it says that God has revealed himself this way in his word. That's a very, very important point that our catechism makes. So first, let's just consider briefly this doctrine, this big uh, doctrine of the Trinity. So if you remember earlier in our, our first service, in our, our reading of the law, we read from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This in Judaism is called the Shema, which is the Hebrew term for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is probably the most ancient creed of God's people. It was recited every week in the synagogues. And then it also likely was carried over in early Christian worship. This basic confession that God is fundamentally one. And this would have been a, a stood in stark contrast to the other nations surrounding Israel. These nations believed in many gods. They were polytheistic. But Israel believed and trusted themselves to Yahweh. The Lord God, the Lord is one. However, even in the Old Testament, although the emphasis in the Old Testament is on the oneness of God, we still see the Old Testament reveal the Trinity and the threeness of God. Right away in creation, we encounter the Spirit who's hovering over that which is formless and void. We encounter the divine plurals in creation. Let us make man in our own image. The Spirit is the one who fills the temple. We come across this figure on a number of occasions in the Old Testament who's referred to as the angel of the Lord. And many commentators think that this is a Christophany, a manifestation of Christ before his incarnation. So although the emphasis in the Old Testament is on the oneness of God, we still have glimpses to the threeness of God. Then when it comes to the New Testament, it flips. The emphasis is now on the threeness and the oneness is, uh, it's still there, but it's not emphasized as much. So Matthew chapter 3, Jesus' baptism. Jesus is being baptized. God the Father is speaking from heaven, and the Spirit is descending like a dove. Three distinct persons, three actors. And then in the passage which we read, this great commission, Jesus is commission, commissioning his disciples to carry on the baton of his mission. To continue to spread this kingdom to the far reaches of the earth. And he gives them the tools that they are to use. The word, teach them all that I've commanded you. And the sacraments, baptize in the name. Now if Jesus would have just stopped there, that would have, wouldn't have seemed that radical to them. Baptized in the name, in the name of God. A good Jew knew of the name of God, the name of Yahweh. But what 
would have maybe caused them to scratch their heads a bit is, is that they're to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the singular name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You have a great summary of the Trinity in the Great Commission. The singular name of the triune God. One God revealed and existing in three distinct persons. And, and really, throughout history, all of the heresies regarding the Trinity and the doctrine of God have either emphasized the oneness to the exclusion of the threeness, or the threeness to the exclusion of the oneness. I love how one ancient church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, he, 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 he makes this statement. He says, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. And no sooner do I distinguish the three that I'm carried back to the one. Thinks about the one, he's carried to the three. When he thinks about the three, he's carried back to the one. This perfect harmony and balance between the oneness and threeness of God. So we can say that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son or the Father. Now, the reason why I chose Matthew 28 as kind of our text to tether us this, this morning is because the doctrine of, tri of the Trinity is connected to what element of our worship in Matthew 28, 19? What element of worship is the doctrine of the Trinity connected to in Matthew 28, verse 19? Sacraments, baptism. Baptism. Baptized in the name of the triune God. And so this, what this tells us is that there's this intimate connection between worship. Again, baptism is an element of our worship. Worship and the Trinity. Worship and our triune faith. There's an old medieval saying that says, the law of praying is the law of believing. The law of praying is the law of believing. Which essentially means that how we worship both reflects and shapes what we believe. How we worship reflects and shapes how we believe. And so when you think about baptism, how we administer baptism very much reflects and shapes our doctrine of God. If you don't baptize in the name of the triune God, that has huge implications on what you believe about God. Huge implications on the veracity of that baptism. We're baptized into the triune faith. We're given God's signs and seals in baptism, and this is the triune God. Promises of, of God as creator, as the one who elects his people. Promises from God the Son, who's our redeemer. Promises from God the Holy Spirit, who's our sanctifier. So baptism is necessarily related to this triune faith. I remember one of my one of my professors from seminary told a story, and he he started teaching later on in his his ministry, and he spent many decades in the church, and he told a story about one time he was administering an infant baptism, and the family who was presenting this child for baptism had all of their extended family in town to witness the baptism. And he was doing this baptism, and he 
as a slip of mind, forgot one of the members of the Trinity. So he baptized this child in the name of, I don't know which one he left out, but the Father and the Son. And one of the elders noticed it and came up to him after the service and said, you, you know, you forgot one of the members of the Trinity. And they talked and they realized it's not a credible baptism. And so they had to come back next, the next week and, and redo it. But it goes to show that there's this intimate connection between worship and our belief. It's true with our prayers as well. Many of us probably have heard or even said prayers ourselves that go something like this. You know, oh Lord, I, I thank you for creating me, um, electing me, dying on the cross for my sins, and living in my heart right now. And we pray all these things in your name. Now, what we're actually praying is that God the Father has created us, elected us, came to this earth in human form, died on the cross, is living in our hearts, and is our intercessor. Now, of course, we're not heard because all of our prayers are theologically accurate, and so that's not my point here. Uh, all of our, all our prayers are imprecise, inarticulate, and imperfect. We have a, two intercessors, as we considered a couple weeks ago, in, in Jesus and in the Spirit. But we also have to acknowledge that Jesus, there is a right and wrong way to pray, and we are called to grow in our prayer lives. Our confidence isn't in our articulation or how theologically accurate they are, but we are called to grow. Uh, Jesus himself calls us to pray in his name. And it's when we pray in his name, we have confidence. He's our intercessor. We are called to pray according to the revealed will of God, according to the template in the Lord's Prayer. So there is a, a right and wrong way to pray, and we are called to grow up into the right way. Well, again, with prayers, and our prayers, our prayers very much reflect and shape what we believe, especially in regard to the Trinity. And when we're in churches that just really are, don't make that distinction between the members of the Trinity, and we're just hearing prayers that basically sound like God the Father is, is doing everything, taking human form, living in our hearts, interceding, that shapes the people's belief about God and their own prayer lives. And so our worship very much reflects and shapes our belief. And thus, one of the purposes of Lord's Day worship is to be catechized or instructed, as it were, in our triune faith. If, you know, if you're in a church that has an intentional order of worship, an intentional liturgy, hopefully you're not going to have to read tomes on the Trinity. You will learn the Trinity just by participating in worship, just by participating in hearing the prayers of the church, uh, singing the songs of our church. Think of the Gloria Patri, which we sing every Lord's Day. This is a very um, triune song, as it were. And thus we, 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 we become acquainted with this essential doctrine, almost through osmosis, as we participate in worship. Participate and, and witness baptisms in the name of the triune God. And thus worship and worship and and the Trinity are, are very much connected. How we worship reflects and shapes our belief. Again, this is one of the reasons why we have a service like this, a catechism service. How many sermons do you hear ordinarily on the Trinity? Probably not, not a lot. 
unless you're going through systematically some of the main doctrines of the Christian faith. Well, we all probably could and can articulate the claims of the Trinity. God is one and exists in three persons. But when we try to press into it a bit deeper, that's when things get difficult. And the how question is tough. We can articulate the what, but how does this all fit together? How can God be one, but then three? And, and we start to, to go down that route, it gets, it gets fuzzy pretty quickly. How do we reconcile these things? It seems like an apparent contradiction in our minds. And so I'd like us to uh, now transition and focus specifically on question and answer 24. You'll notice that it basically asks this question. Why is God, you know, how is it that God can be revealed? Or no, uh, uh, excuse me, question answer 25. He's, Since there's one divine being, why do we speak of three persons? And notice the answer. The answer begins with a statement about this is the way God has revealed himself. This is the way God has revealed himself. And that's so important. This is the reason why I include Isaiah 55 in our, in our reading earlier. In Isaiah 55, God makes this, uh, tells us that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And what this is teaching us is this very important doctrine that's oftentimes referred to as the creator-creature distinction. There's this massive chasm between God as creator and we as the creatures. Not just because of our sin, but even Adam before the fall had this chasm between himself as a creature and God as a creator. And apart from God's initiation, no human being would have any hope of knowing God. God is in a league of his own. And so Isaiah then goes on in verse 11, 10 11, to talk about the word of God. How God's word is true. It's effectual. accomplishes his purposes. Just like the rain. He compares it to rain and just how when the rain falls upon this earth, it accomplishes God's intended purpose. God's purpose for the rain, obviously, is to create or give life to this earth. Make the vegetation all around us green and healthy and vibrant. And so, too, when it comes to God's word, it accomplishes God's intended purpose of saving and sanctifying sinners. And so the connection between the creator and the creature, that distinction, and the word of God is that... It's God's word that bridges the gap between God as the creator and we as the creature. God's word is what bridges the gap between God as creator and we as the creatures. God himself condescends, stoops down as it were on his knee and reveals himself in a way that we can understand as finite creatures. Theologians have referred to this revelation of God's word as a book of analogies. And what's an analogy? Well, an analogy is employed when you're trying to explain a very complex, difficult subject, and you explain it by pointing to something that's already known. And that's what God does in Scripture to reveal himself. He points to things that we know from this creation. Now, we shouldn't pause it 
that we shouldn't understand this in some overly literal sense as if God is just some big human being upstairs and has tear ducts and is walking to and fro and has, a, has arms and legs. No, this is, these are analogies so that we can come to some knowledge of who God is. You know, Calvin, you, uh, his illustration to explain this was like a, a nanny stooping down and speaking to the uh, uh, cognitive and rational ability of a two-year-old. You condescend your speech to the capacity of that child. And that's what God does for us in Scripture. He condescends and speaks in analogies so that we can come to some knowledge of who he is. I think if you're going to a, a talk by a popular scholar giving some um, talk to a general audience, you're hoping that, that that talk is not going to be delivered as if that scholar is giving an address to other scholars in his field. You're hoping he brings it down six notches for the ordinary person. God condescends. He bridges this gap so that we can have some knowledge and fruition of who he is as our creator and redeemer. Thus, when it comes to Christian doctrine, this tells us that we can come to a true knowledge of God. We can come to a true knowledge of God because he's revealed himself in Scripture. But we cannot come to an exhaustive or absolute knowledge. All of our knowledge is like a drop in the bucket of, of the ocean of the expanse of God. And this is why almost every doctrine that, that you start pressing into, you run up to a ceiling where you can explain what's going on, but then it's just you throw your hands up in the air and doxology and adoration. I mean, think of the Trinity. Think of the Lord's Supper. It's not just a remembrance, but there is in some sense a, a real communion with Christ himself. How? I don't know, but the word reveals that we do. Uh, the, the fact that God's sovereign, but yet we're still responsible moral actors. How does that fit together? The fact that God permits suffering, but yet God is still good and all-powerful. How do we reconcile those things? We run up to a ceiling of what we can say based on the revelation God has given us, and at some point we need to throw our hands up in doxology and worship because we follow and worship a God who is truly incomprehensible, a God who is great and majestic, and we will only get, a, 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 again, a drop in the bucket of the ocean of his expanse. And so that's important to, to realize when we encounter tough doctrines like the Trinity. There's going to be an element of mystery to it. Not contradiction, but mystery. And sometimes, for us moderns, there's this notion in modernity that the reason is sort of the, the king. Reason is king. And if we can't rationally understand something, then it must not be true or there must be a contradiction in God. Because our reason is king. But people in pre-modern times very, had a much easier time embracing mystery. If they couldn't understand it, it wasn't that God didn't exist or there's a contradiction in God. But they realize that there's mystery to these things because our finitude and God's incomprehensibility. So this, this phrase that the catechism uses is so important. God has revealed himself this way. And we will come to some knowledge of it, but we're not going to be able to fit it all together in a way that we can say, I've exhaustively mastered the Trinity. Because we, 
worship an incomprehensible God. And I love how Paul oftentimes, especially in the book of Romans, he'll be explaining doctrine and then he'll just stop and burst out in doxology due to the greatness and majesty of our God. So I'd like us to conclude as I read one of, one of these outbursts by Paul in Romans chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are humbled as we think upon who you are. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are humbled at your power, your greatness. We know that we are only barely wading into the waters of, of, of who, of the expanse of who you are. And we thank you that we have the, the privilege of knowing you, of being called your sons and your daughters. And, and we know that if, if it wasn't from your initiation, we would have no hope of being in a relationship with God, our creator. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would continue to foster within us this doxological spirit as we think upon who you are as you've revealed yourself to us in Scripture. And, O oh Lord, may this, this doxology lead to um, a discipleship as we seek to follow you and your laws as you've um, instructed us through your word. We pray all, and, and we also pray, O oh Lord, for, uh, for the needs of your people. Uh, we, we pray for... Uh, the concerns that have been mentioned, uh, we pray for those who are away from us. We pray for the wits. We pray for uh, Tony as he is in training. We ask that you bless uh, their travels. Uh, we pray for the many other uh, anxieties of our heart, O oh Lord. We know that, that they are many, but we know that you are good and you are gracious. We pray for... A Jackie and the concerns that she has. We, we just lift all these and, and many more before your heavenly throne, knowing that you are our good and faithful Father, a Father who delights in answering the prayers of your people uh, even more than earthly fathers delight to grant the requests of, of their children. We pray all these things in the name of our risen Son and Lord, uh, uh, your risen Son and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we seek to respond to this word once again, uh, please stand and turn to number 226. Number 226, which is a, actually a setting of that passage in Romans, which I concluded with. So Romans uh, number 226.
Receive now God's blessing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you too may abound in hope. Amen. Yes, how are you doing? Yes, yeah, good to see you. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so I have something else going on around, so I can't do lunch. Um, but with like around three or something, yeah. Um, would it be coffee or? Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs>